Well, I am excited. I'm glad that, look, we've had fun. We've had breaks. Uh, we've had our winter camp. And I am glad that we're getting back into the swing of things after all this, where we get to see each other week after week consistently. And I'm excited that I do get to start the book of 1 John. Uh, so go ahead and be turning there. It's pretty easy to get to. It is a smaller book in the New Testament. But hey, the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, they're all the way at the end of the Bible. You go to Revelation, you turn back, and there's Jude. You turn back one more, you've hit the three epistles of John. And if you don't know where it is, I also have good news. You're going to have lots of practice. We're going to be in 1st John probably for like six months or something. I think that's what we've, we've scheduled. We'll see what actually happens with that as life comes up. But you're going to have lots of practice and time to get there. Now, I know I have a few people... Actually, you know, I, I don't think I have them. I think they're out sick. There may be someone in here who speaks Latin. Do we have any classical Latin people? Kind of? Okay, so we have a few people that maybe know a little bit of Latin. How many people in here really enjoy the movie-making process, like the writing process, the theory behind movie creation, or writing novels, stuff like that? A few more people? Okay, how many people are familiar, and I'm going to butcher this because I'm Southern and I'm not Latin, how many people are familiar with the phrase in medias res or in media res, if you want to say it the southern way? No one? Okay, it's, it's a phrase that means in the middle of things. So when you start a movie, typically you start with this gentle introduction. You have Belle walking through the countryside in Beauty and the Beast, and you get to know who she is, her wants and desires, and how she's stuck in this providential life. Uh, when you start in the middle of things, that's more like Star Wars. All of a sudden, movie opens up, and there is a space battle going on. There's this guy in a black suit. There's a lady with Cinnabon rolls on her ears. What is going on? We don't know, but that's okay. We start in the middle of things, and eventually, when everything quiets down, we're going to pick back up and get to know what's happening. Well, First John is an epistle that starts off very much in the middle of things. Instead of introducing who he is and kind of who his intended audience is, John just, he hits the ground and we are going and you better hold on tight as he jumps into some deep theology. As he gives this short introduction where he summarizes why he is writing this epistle and why he is a trustworthy source of information. So before we actually address our passage, we're going to be in 1 John. We're going to look at the first four verses this morning eventually. Uh, and before we get there, I want to give us some background on the epistle of 1 John. And we're going to start with kind of the most basic facts, and we're going to work our way out from there. So the first thing is, who was 1 John written to? Uh, there isn't a specific geographic group that 1 John is written to. It's not addressed to anyone specifically. Uh, as a geographical region. Uh, rather, we see that this letter was written to just Christians in general. And we can see this from what he says in 1 John 5.13, where it says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, this open-ended kind of letter for those who believe in the Son of God, or Christians, uh, is what we call a Catholic epistle. And that's not Catholic, the religion, but Catholic using its original meaning of a broad scope or uh, concerning all mankind universal. So if you want to have some fun as you drive home today and your parents say, hey, what did you do today? Instead of going, nothing, I didn't learn anything. You can say, oh yeah, Matthew had us read this Catholic epistle. And you can see how wide their eyes get. Maybe they're going to be like, oh, so you're in like First John or something. Uh, but maybe they're like, wait, I'm sorry, what are you doing? Why are you studying something Catholic? Uh, but if you do that, 
you have to promise to give the explanation about how you learned that Catholic originally meant for all mankind. It was a universal letter. Because I don't want Alejandro and Dusty getting angry emails this week, okay? Of parents going, excuse me, uh, I'm doing an email with a phone for some reason. Excuse me, (laughs) why are you having my children read something Catholic? But if you, uh, so so make sure you got to mention the punchline to the joke. So next, who wrote 1 John? Uh, the short answer is that it was John, the disciple of Jesus, brother James, and son of Zebedee. And how do we know that? Well, through inference. Uh, nowhere in any of the epistles of 1 John, 2 John, or 3 John does it say, hey, I, John, the son of Zebedee, I, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, we don't get that. Instead, we have to rely a bit on church history and a lot on context clues. So historically, we know that the very early Christian writers, people like, uh, and, and I'm sorry, bonuses if you're listening later, uh, Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, and Tertullian, all said that this epistle was written by John. These were three very famous early uh, Christian writers. And these were men who lived like less than 100 years after Jesus. In fact, Arrhenius was born 40 years after 1 John was probably written. So uh, Arrhenius, born in the early 30s, or excuse me, early 130 AD. So when you have someone that young, that cre- or recently afterwards, there are probably people who were still alive in the church who had seen this letter delivered, who had heard it originally spoken, and they were able to say, hey, yes, you know what? I was a disciple of John. And I saw him write this letter, and I am telling you that he wrote this letter, and those men wrote it down, and we have those records. Beyond church history, though, we can also see in verses 1 through 3 that the author states that he's going to tell him things he personally saw, things he saw, things he heard, uh, things that he was an eyewitness for. And specifically, he's going to say that he was an eyewitness for Jesus himself, that he physically saw Jesus. And he spent a prolonged amount of time with Jesus. So that comment alone narrows it down to a a close disciple of Jesus. And realistically, that would have been one of the 11 remaining disciples. And if you think also about uh, where we are, this was probably written about 95 AD. We'll get there in a second. A lot of the disciples were dead at this point. Uh, The list of disciples that could have been is is pretty small, even concerning it only started with 11 people. Uh, So... We're, we're already pretty close to it being John, but if you look at the material that First John goes over, his writing style, you're going to see that it really mirrors in a lot of ways the Gospel of John, which was written by John. Uh, and so because of this extra-biblical historical sources, as well as the internal, we see the writing styles are the same, we see the subject matter is the same, we have great confidence that it is John who wrote this epistle. So the next basic fact, when was 1 John written? Probably around uh, the early to mid-90s AD, so about 95 AD, we'll say. Uh, Who can tell me what is significant about the year 95 AD? Anyone know? No one, really? Sure, yeah, sure. Sure. No, no, no. Nothing. The answer is nothing. It's a trick question. Okay. (laughs) This is one of those things where it's like, hey, I want you to know it was written in 95 AD. Great, Matt. Why is that important? Well, by itself, it's not. Like, this is just a trivia piece of information if we leave it by itself. But we're not going to leave it by itself. Uh, I want us to take a quick timeline, a look at the timeline of the early church history. And this is why it's important. 
Nothing in the New Testament was just written for no reason. God had a reason for everything he had written in the New Testament. And it was usually in response to something that was going on in the lives of the people of the church, a struggle they were facing, a religious concern they had. And so this is just a a quick history. You see up in the top left, you have 30 AD, which I'm saying this is the death and resurrection of Jesus. All these dates are approximate. Please, no one come at me if you're a historical major and you say, well, actually, Matthew, the more reasonable date is 32. These are are approximate dates, okay? Plus or minus a few years, everyone. And then we're going to finish in the bottom right with 100 AD. That's a nice round number for approximately when John died on the island of Patmos. During these 70 years, this was the growth and expansion of the early church. This is when all the New Testament was written over 70 years. When you think about how long the Old Testament was written in, 70 years in an incredibly short amount of time. And when you actually stop to think about it, the first book, probably Mark, was written in about 50 AD. So it was really just the course of 45-ish years that the entire New Testament was written in. And we see the church grows, we see it persecuted, uh, we see the writing of the scriptures, we see Paul's three missionary journeys, we see that he's imprisoned, we see that Nero blames the Christians for starting a fire in Rome and persecution increases again. Paul and Peter are killed, the disciples, the people who saw Jesus, they're disappearing one by one as age and persecution takes them. And then John writes his gospel in the year 80 A.D., 15 years before the book of 1 John was written. And I want you to think about just like our own lives. Like I, your life is significantly shorter than mine, but when I was five or six, Countryside Bible Church, our sending church, it transitioned from the east side of Whitechapel and a couple portables into our brand new built sanctuary, which they call it the chapel now, I think. Yeah, the chapel. That was the first building they built. That was 30 years ago. That would take us from Jesus' death and resurrection to the prison epistles, Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. That's a pretty short time. Like, it's a long time to me, a long time to y'all, but when you look at the history of the early church, that's, that's like a pretty short time. And yet, Countryside Bible Church, we went through a lot of stuff in those first 30 years. We went through church splits. We went through... Um, having to get rid of our pastor. We went through an abuse of the scriptures. We went through a time where we had no pastor. We finally got uh, Tom Pennington. And we've seen our church grow since then to the point where, one, we, they did a church plan of North Lake, which I'm very thankful for because it lets me be here this morning. And two, they're, they're about to church plan another plant, another church, which is an exciting time. And that's just 30 years. That's not even the full 70 that we see on this timeline. So I want you all to understand, what would it have been like if Countryside Bible Church had been part of this early church? And we were dealing with things of, how do you handle proper pastoral ministry? How do you handle it when a pastor isn't doing his proper pastoral ministry? What letters would have been written to Countryside Bible Church? And what letters would now be written to North Lake? I mean, would, would we be there in Revelation where we're being praised that we have the love that we first start off with? Would we be getting warned like, hey, I see things are starting to grow cold. How would God be responding to us right now? And that's what was going on with each one of these New Testament books that were being written. 
And so that creates the question, the reason it's significant that it was written in 95 AD is because we need to wonder what was going on historically at that time. Well, in 80 AD, John wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote concerning how Jesus is the Son of God. And since then, over the course of 15 years between the Gospel of John and the first epistle of John, people are asking, what does that actually mean, though? Like, we see how you say that Jesus is the Son of God, but what does this mean? And they came up with three overarching camps that existed trying to answer this question. In the first group, you had those who trusted in the gospel they had received and what John had written to them previously in his gospel and what the other 22 letters they had already been written up to this point, and they believed in this faithful testimony. And this, this was the group of faithful believers. The second group would have been the Jewish believers who had a hard time accepting the divinity of Jesus. They would have been the ones who grew up hearing the Shema. Does anyone remember what that is? The Shema. I'm probably saying it wrong, but that's okay. It was the the phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Morning and night, this would have been said, And having heard this so much, they would have found it a little bit difficult to accept the triune nature of God. They would have said, wait a minute, God is one. This is a fundamental truth that we have in the Old Testament. So now why are you coming in and talking about this secondary person of God? And they would have been having this despite the references to the the fact that Jesus was there from the very beginning of the Old Testament. I mean, you go all the way back to Genesis 1.26, where God says, let us, that is a plural pronoun, let us make man in our, again, plural image, according to our, again, plural likeness. This group put an over-importance on keeping the law while at the same time professing that Jesus saved them from their sins. The final group would have been those who came from the paganistic backgrounds. Instead of it being the Jewish people, now you have the Hellenistic people, or maybe even the Jewish people who grew up in a Hellenistic culture. They could accept Jesus as being divine or supernatural, but they had a harder time believing that this divine supernatural being could have had a fleshly body, a corporeal existence. existence. Uh, They instead insisted that the divine could have no sin in it and the flesh could have no righteousness in it, that, that Jesus only came as a spirit. So this is the backdrop for why 1 John was written. John the disciple, at the end of his life, with almost all the New Testament written, is moved by God to pin a letter to the church calling them to test the validity of their faith and return to a biblical view of who Christ is. So with that introduction, let's go ahead and read our passage for this morning. This is 1 John 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. The Word of God says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Excuse me. See what I mean about we're we're starting right in the middle of things. Like there is no time to catch your breath. So the title for this morning's lesson is Introduction 
and a biblical view of Christ. And our outline is that we're going to start with an introduction, which, hey, congratulations, we're on a great path, or path we are done with the introduction already. And then we're going to take, or we're going to break the passage down into three sections. In verse 1, we're going to see that John gives his credentials. That is the overarching reason you should listen to what he has to say over what other people are saying at this time. In verse 2, John's going to go over Christ's dual nature. That is the fact that he is both 100% man and that he is 100% God. And in verses 3 and 4, John will explain what his goal is in writing this epistle. The theme we're going to see is that this is a call to return to a biblical view of Christ. So let's look at verse 1 again as John explains his credentials. And in explaining his credentials, John begins by stating that, uh, stating what he's going to be discussing. Because, I mean, that makes sense, right? Like, guys, I, I am, not to brag, but I am extremely highly qualified to talk to you about how to program industrial controllers. That's my job. I have a lot of experience in it, and I'm pretty good at it. Uh, as part of that, I have to deal a lot with electricity. So I'm, I'm somewhat knowledgeable on electricity and circuits. Uh, I'm nowhere near the level of an electrician, not even a journeyman electrician. That's a learning electrician. Not there, but I'm at least knowledgeable. Uh, if you want to talk graphic design, however, you need to go talk to my sister. All right, guys, she is the one who went to college for graphic design. That is her job. I know nothing about graphic design. Like, I do my best to put together slideshows and stuff. I appreciate that y'all endure it, uh, okay? <laughs> so if we're going to talk to someone... And they're going to say, I have all these credentials. That's great that you have credentials, but you have credentials in what we're actually talking about. And so John's going to say, this is the subject I'm going to talk to you about. And these are my credentials that prove why I am, in fact, an authority on this subject. So John begins the epistle saying that his desire is to discuss what he calls at the end of verse 1 as the word of life and why he is qualified to teach this topic. Now, who is the word of life that John is referring to in verse 1? This is, a, this is an easy Sunday school answer, guys. Jesus. There you go. The answer is Jesus. It is the Messiah. And I think it's interesting that John describes Jesus as the word of life here in verse 1. And in verse 2, he's going to take it one step farther and describe Jesus as being eternal life itself. And for me, it made me think of Peter's words in, uh, in John 6, 68. So you may remember in John 6, uh, or technically in John 5, Jesus had done, oh yeah, it was John 6. The beginning of John 6, John, uh, Jesus had just done the feeding of the 5,000. And then the very next day, the people come to Jesus and they say, hey, I bet you can't do it twice. And Jesus responds to him and says, more importantly than me doing it twice you need to understand that I am the bread of life. You come, you come looking for bread, but I am the bread of life. And how did people respond to Jesus saying this? Does anyone remember? What did they do? Were they happy about this response? Yeah, they're, they're like, are we supposed to eat this man's flesh? This is crazy talk. And actually, a lot of his own disciples left him. The Bible talks about how his disciples said, we can't, this is too hard of a saying for us. This man is crazy. He's, he's teaching cannibalism. We're out. 
And Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples, the 12 apostles, and he says, will you too leave me? I love Peter's response. You know, Peter, he, he often sticks his foot in his mouth, right? But I love Peter. He's always ready, always listening to Jesus and always ready to talk and be with him. And so Peter steps up and in John six sixty-eight through 69, Peter responds to Jesus and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John wants to make one thing abundantly clear as he opens this, this epistle. It's not the teaching of men or angels that we should be listening to as our authority in life. You know, it doesn't matter how globally recognized a religious figure is. So it doesn't matter if the Pope or some super famous rabbi says something. And it doesn't matter how obscure someone is. Like if someone is only locally known within their own church, like me, it doesn't matter what I have to say. It doesn't even matter if an angel of light comes before you and says, I have a message to give you. If what they teach, the message they give, contradicts what Jesus taught, you are to reject that teaching. It is God alone who is to be trusted, and John is describing Jesus specifically as the word of life. That is the same way that in Genesis we see that the tree of life gave Adam and Eve everlasting physical days as long as they were able to eat that tree of life. So too are the words that Jesus teaches us able to give us eternal spiritual life. So that's the who John wants to discuss. He wants to discuss the word of life, Jesus himself. But why should we listen to John? Why is John an authoritative subject on this, on this topic? Well, John gives five reasons why he is to be trusted over those who are teaching that Christ is anything other than 100% man and 100% God. And first, kind of point zero here, before listing his credentials, just as a baseline for the discussion, John testifies to Jesus' unchanging nature when he says, what was from the beginning? This opening, in a lot of ways, echoes what he wrote in his Gospel of John, in John uh, 1.1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. Now, John's not trying to do a summarization of his gospel in this epistle. Like, that is not the point of First John. This isn't like, hey, you know what? I know I kind of wrote this long gospel, so here's the cliff note version. No, <laughs> there are going to be some similarities because he is reiterating points because he wants them to understand a biblical view of who Christ is so that we can know for certain that we are saved. But he's not intending just to do a cliff note version. This is a basic truth that he is reiterating so the reader comes to understand what the revealed word of God has already said about who Christ is. Jesus' nature does not change. As Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. When Jesus came to earth, he did not change stripping away his divinity. If Jesus removed his divinity to come to earth, he would have changed. And Hebrews 13.8 would be wrong, and the Bible would be full of errors. Jesus came to earth, remaining 100% God, and added on to his divinity our humanity. 
So having appealed to Jesus' unchanging divine nature, John goes on to list his five reasons why you should listen to his testimony concerning Jesus. First of all, John heard Jesus teach. He personally heard John, or excuse me, Jesus teach. Where these other teachers are looking at John's previous teachings or maybe some of the other writings of, of the New Testament, and they're trying to insert their own cultural preconceived notions into those teachings, John is saying, I personally heard Jesus speak. And this is the testimony that Jesus gave about who he is and about his own nature. Second, John saw Jesus. Where everyone else, they're kind of imagining like, oh man, Jesus, he must have come as a spirit. And I just bet when he walked, his footprints left nothing in the sand. Like his feet left no footprints in the sand. They're kind of imagining this Jesus or, or, well, no, 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 Jesus, he must have been this man with a great beard and he had long tassels and he was a, a great rabbi. No, John's saying, I personally saw him. This is who Jesus was. In fact, not only did he see Jesus, but he looked at Jesus. And you're like, Matt, that's the same thing, right? Well, no, <laughs> it's not. Uh, so it, in English, look, saw, same thing. But the actual intent of the word is uh, that he gazed upon him for a, a long time. So it's like you go to a theater or, or a movie nowadays, and you look at the movie screen, and you study what's happening up on the stage and the screen for a long time. Don, John didn't just see Jesus in passing. He spent years examining him to know him more. And fourth, John personally touched Jesus. Now, when he says he personally touched them, this could refer to something like what we see in John 13, 23. We're told that John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining upon Jesus' chest. And this is just something they did uh, in the old days. You know, you'd be sitting on the floor at the table and they'd be reclining. And it was just, you know, what guys did. It's weird today. I, okay, I know it's weird today. It wasn't weird back then. Okay. <laughs> The same way they used to greet each other with a kiss or they greet each other with a kiss in France and we don't do it here because that's, that's weird. Uh, Hondo, you don't need to kiss me. I, we don't need to go there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's not, not my thing, Evan. Uh, but culturally, that's what they did. So this could be what, the, what he's saying to when he said, I, uh, when it, this could be what he's referring to when John says that he touched Jesus. But I think it's more likely that John was referencing what we see in Luke 24, verses 39 through 43. So this is shortly after Jesus' resurrection. And John was there with the remaining disciples, minus Thomas. Thomas was out and away. And as they were all gathered together, Jesus appears to them. And in verse 37, the Bible explicitly tells us that disciples were concerned because they thought they saw a spirit. They thought that this was Jesus' spirit and not his physical body. That's the baseline understanding for what we're about to read. They thought it was a ghost. The same way that they were scared when they saw Jesus walking on the water and they were stuck rowing hard against the wind and they thought it was a ghost. Same thing here. And to quiet their doubts and their fears, in verse 39, Jesus addresses, addresses them and says, here's the proof that I am a physical, physical being. See my hands and feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still not believing because of their joy and were still marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. The reason he ate food was again, spirits don't eat. 
And Jesus was proving beyond a shadow of doubt that he resurrected not just as a spirit, but in bodily form. John must have come forward at this point. Like the, the Bible says that they were marveling. At some point, they must have gotten over their marveling and touched Jesus because this passage is given us to, to us as proof that Jesus had a body. So John would have come forward, examined him closely, and touched him to confirm that Jesus had truly risen from the dead. So that's four reasons why you should listen to John. I said that there's five in verse one, but if you look at verse one, you know something. We're at the end of verse one. So who can guess what the fifth reason is? And I'm going to give you a hint. Uh, It's not directly stated in this verse, but it is mentioned several times in the verse. This fifth reason why you should believe him. One more hint here. What kind of pronoun does John use in verse one? Say it loud. We. Yes, say it loud. Yes. Okay, yes. Yeah, he, uses, he uses the word we. What kind of pronoun is that? Plural pronoun. Why is it significant that John is using a plural pronoun in this verse? What do you think, William? It means the others were there too. It means the others were there too. Keep going. You're on the right track. And they witnessed the same things. And they, witness the same things and they testify to the same things. The fifth, fifth reason why you should believe the credentials of John is that the message that John is sharing is true and trustworthy because it is the same testimony that all those who witness Christ affirm in their teachings as well. This is the unified belief of all those who studied under Jesus, who saw him personally, who heard him personally, who saw him after his resurrection and touched his hands and his feet and his side where the spear pierced him. This brings us to our second section, and that's Christ's dual nature. I know it's been a minute, so let's read verse 2 again. It says, And the life that is the word of life that John mentions at the end of verse 1, the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. I want you to know something there and that is twice John states that the word was manifested which means to make known. And the reason he's doing that is he wants to stress the importance of what it really means that Jesus was manifested, Jesus was revealed to us by the Father. And first of all, for Christ to have been manifested or made known to us, it must mean that at one point he was hidden in some aspect. And if we think this through, we can, we can think logically that there's no way that what he means is that people just didn't know Christ even existed before the New Testament. Like, we can X that out completely, guys. Because, again, we've already talked about how in Genesis 1.1, we see God uses the plural pronouns. So you have subtle references like that. But then you have overt references, direct references, uh, and this is things like we see in the Psalms, how my Lord said, or to his Lord said to my Lord, I, I'll make a, all the people a footstool on your feet. Um, I didn't write that one down. I just thought of it off, off the top of my head. I'm sorry, I'm getting it wrong there. Uh, but also in Genesis 3, that's where we see that God promises that one day the seed of the woman would crush Satan. And then when Jesus was presented at the temple in Luke, We see that there are two people there who were described as eagerly awaiting 
the consolation of Israel. That was uh, Simeon and Anna. And they rejoiced to see the baby Jesus, not because he was some man who would someday have the Spirit of God fall upon him, but because he was Christ himself, the promised Messiah. They knew about Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and were eagerly awaiting his arrival. And to this day, modern Jewish people are anticipating the Messiah that has already come because they know that the Old Testament proclaims Christ. So we can't say that Christ was just unknown in the Old Testament. There is absolutely zero proof for that. So when we say that God manifested, God revealed Jesus to us, what we are talking about is the incarnation of Jesus. Or as John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So remember, the larger issue going on here that's prompted God to have John write 1 John is that there are some people who are denying Jesus' humanity, saying that Jesus was just never human at all. He existed as a spiritual ghost. And here John powerfully says, No, fellow believer. We must reject this teaching as Christians because the word of life with Christ Jesus was manifested to us. That is, Christ, the second member of the Trinity, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And then he says it a second time at the end of verse 2. No, no, really, guys. Jesus, the word of life, who is with the Father, has manifested to us. And this is also what we're taught in Philippians 2, 6-8. It says, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Without removing his divinity, Christ added to himself our humanity. He was born as a baby. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father all the way to dying on the cross. So if denying Christ's humanity was half of the issue, who remembers what the other half of the issue going on at the time was? There was a group that said, no, Christ was never human. He was fully God. And there was another group that said what? He was just a person. Yeah, he was just a person. They, they, they downplayed his divinity. They say he was just a good man. He kept the law so good that God took him and gave him his spirit, you know, kind of like Elijah or Mo- Moses. Uh, he was just a really, really good man. And then when he died on the cross, this, you know, God is a spirit, so he can't die. So obviously the spirit of God left on the cross, and then just the man died. So they downplay his divinity. Well, here in verse 2, we see that John also rejects that teaching. I mean, technically speaking, he started to reject it like in the first five words of uh, verse 1, where he says uh, what was from the beginning concerning the word of life. And that the word of life, Jesus, they're saying, no, 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 he wasn't just a man. Jesus, the word of life, was there from the very, very beginning. And John does this fun, like, I, don't, I don't know if you call it play on words or just a writing technique. Uh, you know, there's probably some biblical scholar who goes, oh yeah, it's just this exact phrase, Matthew, but I, I don't know it. Uh, but he does this thing where he swaps out the title that he gives to Christ in the middle of the verse to prove a point. You know, he starts off calling Jesus the word of life that was manifested. 
And then by the end of the verse, he switches to calling Jesus the eternal life was manifested. So the, the point by saying it was the word of life that was manifested, it was the eternal, uh, eternal life that was manifested, is to say that these are describing the same person. I'm just giving him two different titles. And he does this to emphasize that, first of all, Jesus lives forever. You know, Jesus wasn't just a prophet who followed the law and died, and, and now his spirit is in heaven alongside God's spirit that he had on earth, and we're making this way too complicated. No, he's saying, no, Jesus, everlasting, all the way from the very beginning. Uh, this is, uh, we, we see this in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty that Jesus was risen to eternal life first. Uh, it says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So it's not just that a man died, it's that Jesus Christ himself died and was the first to raise again to new life with a physical body. And second, he's pointing out the irony of what these individuals are claiming to believe. He's saying, really? Let me, let me make sure I understand what you're claiming right now. You're claiming to trust in Jesus as your Savior that has purchased eternal life for you while at the same time claiming he was just a man that died? Like you're saying a dead man is what's giving you eternal life? Are you sure, you, are you sure this is where you want to place your trust in? He's saying, no, that makes no sense because Jesus isn't just someone who has eternal life. Jesus is the eternal life. You can't have eternal life without Jesus as God being physically raised to eternal life. The two things are one and the same. And in fact, just before 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul is actually talking about this very issue. And he's saying that if the Christ, the promised Messiah, who is God, wasn't literally raised from the dead in bodily form, then our faith is completely worthless. He says, guys, without Christ being raised, our faith is worthless. Those who died trusting in Christ are in hell, and we, above all men on the face of the earth, are to be pitied. So we see that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who has always existed and always will exist, is 100% God. And that he, without subtracting a single thing from his divinity, added on to himself humanity, becoming at the same time 100% man. And the fancy theological term for this, if you want to impress your parents sometime later, what did you learn today? Oh, we learned about the hypostatic union, the, the belief that, or I shouldn't say the belief, but the biblical truth that God is both 100% man and 100% God, or that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. And John felt this was so important to a proper proper biblical view that three times in the first three verses, he tells the Christians that he's writing to that these were the things that he saw and is testifying to and proclaiming in truth. And that's kind of what makes this, these first couple of verses so hard to read because he's saying it over and over and over again. And you can see his pastoral heart is just breaking with sorrow that these people are going down the wrong path. And he's saying, no, please listen. I saw Jesus. I heard Jesus. This is the truth. I proclaim it. I testify it. And not just me, but the apostles alongside me. This is the truth, guys. Please, you need to come back. Because this is absolutely fundamental to your faith. And why is it so fundamental? Well, look at verse 3. It says, that it's so you too may have fellowship with us. And listen up, because this is the point. John is making a call to people he believes are Christians. Remember, this book 
is written as a Catholic epistle, a general writing to all Christians. John believes he is talking to Christians who are starting to believe bad theology. Like, they're not heretics yet. Unfortunately, this, is, this does grow into a heresy. But at this point, it is teaching that is starting to creep in as they think about who Jesus is, and he's saying, let me correct you. Come back to the true path. Because without accepting the biblical view of Christ, that he's both 100% God and 100% man at the same time, you have no fellowship with believers in the church. And I get it. That sounds harsh, right? Like, really, Matt? That's the hill you want to die on? To say that just because I think that maybe Jesus was a little less than 100% divine, I think he was like 98% divine. Or maybe I think that he's 100% divine, but, you know, maybe he was only mostly human. You're saying I can't have fellowship with you? No, you can't. And it sounds harsh because we have devalued what it means to have fellowship with other people. We use the word fellowship when honestly what we really mean is hanging out. You know, growing up, I remember having fellowship nights in high school and college that were pizza parties. I mean, that, that was it. We'd get together and like, oh man, that was some great fellowship we had. No, it wasn't. We eat pizza and talk sports, okay? There's nothing wrong with having pizza and talking sports. I love having pizza and tolerate talking sports. But it's not fellowship. Or I'd say things like, oh man, I can't wait to have some fellowship time after church. I had it all backwards. Fellowship didn't happen at Red Robin, which has closed down recently, which makes me sad. It didn't happen at Chili's, which closed down years ago and also made me sad. Just the ones I went to. They're still around. That's not fellowship. Fellowship was what was happening at church. So we fall into this thing that fellowship and hang out, same thing. So when I say an unbeliever has no place of fellowship in the church, it comes off like me sounding I'm say, like I'm saying an unbeliever has no place coming to church. And that's not true. I want to have unbelievers in the church. I want an unbeliever to sit next to me on Sunday morning. And I want to have the courage not to immediately run away to go pick up my kid because I'm uncomfortable talking to new people. I want him to say, hey, this pastor of yours, he's talking about this stuff and man, I want to know more. I want unbelievers here. I want them to see what they're missing out on, and I want them to come to faith in Christ. But me hanging out with people, that's not fellowship. I want you to look on in verse 3. John says his desire is that they would have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The reason we can't have fellowship with unbelievers is because the core of Christian fellowship is God himself. We cannot be fellowshipping if God is not central to our discussion. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, we're told to not be bound together with unbelievers, For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, and what fellowship has light with darkness? Uh, To use the word fellowship when what we mean is hangout just cheapens the true meaning of fellowship. You know, I, I can hang out with a Mormon, but I can't fellowship with them because we don't share a core belief of who Jesus is. To say I have fellowship with someone who denies Christ 
as being both fully God and fully man, as the Bible tells us he is, is like trying to bind together light with darkness. They just can't be bound together. And seriously, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with pizza nights and hangouts. I mean, there's a reason Hondo has made it a point that we have the high school hangouts. He chose words intentionally. At least I think he did. I'm going to give him credit for it, even if he didn't. It's fun to hang out. It's great to have these friendships. It is important that you build up these friendships because as you get older, you're going to be relying on their accountability. But God must be the center of our fellowship. Well, John had another goal in mind in writing this epistle that he desires to bring the wayward Christian back to a proper biblical view of who Christ is so that he can have God-centered fellowship with them so that our joy would be complete. Guys, it is truly, truly a joyful thing when a Christian who is walking in rebellion against God repents and comes back to the church. And I've gotten to see this several times. I've gotten to see it at Countryside, and I've gotten to see it here. And it is a beautiful thing because it is the church working in biblical principles. It's the church doing exactly what God has told them to, to hold one another accountable. And when that Christian repents and comes back, we rejoice. And it's also a joyful thing when I see the church welcome that person back. Because there's a tendency, there's a, there's a desire, at least in my heart sometimes, where I go, I've been wrong by this person. And now they're coming back? No. I need to look out for my emotional well-being, my spiritual well-being, by not letting this person back in my life. Look, there are some extreme cases where that might be true. Talk to your parents about those. But for most of the cases in life, understand that that's not the case. Most of the time, we come back to the parable of the, the, the two debtors. One was forgiven an unpayable amount of money, and the other was forgiven a year's worth of salary. And the one who had the unpayable amount of money grabbed that person who owed him money and throttled him, saying, pay it to me all. That's where most of us are when it comes to this issue, okay? And so when we as a church do the biblical thing and accept that person who comes to us repenting, that is a joyful sight to see. Our fellowship is complete again and our joy is made complete. So what's the application for us in this passage? Well, the most important thing is that we need to, as John is calling us, have a proper biblical view of who Christ is. You know, I've mentioned that there's this growing movement. They're thinking, hey, maybe he's less than divine. Maybe he's less than human. And it was just these general ideas. And we can see as we go out throughout this epistle that these growing ideas are addressed. And John says, hey, look, here's the theology I'm hearing. This is bad theology, and this is why. And unfortunately, they don't repent. And this movement continues to grow and grow, and it becomes what uh, we now call the Gnostic movement or Gnosticism. Because they rejected the core truth of Jesus coming in the flesh as both fully man and fully God, they begin teaching really crazy things. They begin to teach that, you know what? Since the flesh 
is nothing but sin, that must mean the Spirit is nothing but not sin. So anything that I do in the flesh doesn't affect the Spirit, so I can do anything I want to in the flesh. No, 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 no. I need to do anything I want to in the flesh. It's important that I do everything I want to in the flesh. That's why God gave us the flesh. So it doesn't matter what sin I pursue, it doesn't actually affect my spirit. This is where an improper belief of who God was, who Christ is as he came to earth, led them to. Likewise today, when we downplay God's divinity or his humanity, we start to do things like question his authority over our lives. We question how accurate can the Bible really be? Or is it really still relevant today? Because if Christ wasn't 100% God, then what does this book matter? It's just some good guy who did his best to understand this vague spiritual concept that came upon him. And honestly, that might be you here today. You have a vague belief in the, in the spiritual and the supernatural, but you aren't convinced the Bible is right or accurate or relevant. And if that's the case, John has a wonderful truth for you. God cared so much for your spiritual well-being that he did not leave it as a vague spiritual feeling for you to try and work out. God sent his only son, the second person of the Trinity, to take on human flesh as a baby to personally teach us about himself, his unchanging nature. And his son added on to his divinity, humanity, so that Jesus would live the perfect life that I cannot keep. So that he could die as a perfect sacrifice, bearing the wrath of God that I could not bear, so that he could clothe me in his righteousness that I do not deserve to wear. These are not the actions of some vague spiritual being who we have to do our best to fill out. These are the deliberate actions of an almighty, mighty, all-caring, all-loving God who is the same today, yesterday, and forever, and who desires for you to know him so that you can have fellowship with him, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And this fellowship with God is freely available to you this morning. If you confess your sins and confess Jesus as Lord, and if you want to know more about that, I do hope you'll come and talk to one of his leaders. Come talk to me. And if I can't answer questions, we'll go to Hondo. And if he can't answer questions, we'll find Brandon. That's the way this goes. <laughs> the second point of application is we need to be intentional with our fellowship. When we, have pro when we have a proper biblical view of who Christ is, we will enjoy fellowship with other believers. And that fellowship is centered around Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. I thank you that you are the same today, yesterday, and forever. And that because of this unchanging nature, I never have to live in fear or doubt that the Bible is no longer accurate concerning who you are and what you desire for me to do in my life, how to live in a righteous manner. Lord, I pray that I would have fellowship with you and that we would practice intentional fellowship with other believers with you as the center as our time together. Lord, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.